0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to an extra edition of SITREP. On the regular programme this week, we were given an insight into what it's like to fly an RAF jet fighter in combat. Retired Wing Commander Mike Sutton shared his story of the physical demands, the high-pressure decisions and the close brushes with lethal danger on Operation Shader in 2015. But we only had time for half his story, so here it is in full, including how and why you end up in that job and how you manage the pressures. First, though, he read as a short extract from his new memoirs, Typhoon.
1: The JTAC was pressing for immediate action. With a flick of the wrist, I overbanked the Typhoon onto the line of attack. Almost inverted, the jet spun effortlessly. I pulled the nose down through the horizon, settling into a 30-degree dive, bang on the heading, and rolled the wings to level. At the same time, I brought the throttles back to idle to keep the engine heat and noise signature low. I wanted to arrive silently out of the sun. The speed was building. A growing speck in the dazzling sky. The typhoon would be on them from three miles away in less than 30 seconds. Through 350 knots, accelerating fast. Dragon cleared live. My heart felt like it was going to burst through my flying suit. Sweat stung my eyes. Do not screw this up.
0: Mike, really good to speak to you. Can you describe what it's like in the cockpit of a typhoon?
1: Hi, Kate. Uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. I'd say uh, it's, it's like nothing else being in a typhoon. It's a hugely powerful and agile aircraft, um, somewhere between a Formula One car and a rocket ship, I'd say. Um, when you accelerate down the runway, get up to about 160 miles an hour, and then at that speed, you then turn it on its tail and, and get it into the sky um, and point at the stars. So it's a hugely manoeuvrable, hugely powerful jet. And it was great fun to fly.
0: And what's it like sitting in the cockpit?
1: It's quite cramped, actually, in the cockpit, uh, relatively. You're, you're, it's a single seat aeroplane, so there's no navigator. You're in there by yourself and you're kind of parceled in. You're wearing a lot of equipment. So you've got a flying suit on. Uh, you've probably got an immersion suit if there's a risk that you might uh, eject into water. Then you've got a G suit as well, which is a, a set of G trousers and a G jacket. And both of those will clamp tightly around your legs and your chest every time you pull G to keep your blood pressure high. Uh, you've also got a flying helmet on. Uh, and you might also be wearing a set of night vision goggles as well that sits sort of forward of your vision and weigh a, a kilogram or so it's a bit like balancing some sort of you know bag of sugar on your a baseball cap um when you pull g uh then it, it puts a lot of pressure onto your body you, you you essentially feel a lot heavier so to put it into some sort of context the average human head weighs about five kilograms you then put a helmet on um you know it's weighing sort of six or seven kilograms um, if you then pull 9G, which is what the, capable, uh, the aircraft's capable of, it's now your head is now weighing 63 kilograms versus five.
0: It makes me wonder why you wanted to do it.
1: I think it was just hugely exciting. Um, when I was a teenager, I decided I wanted to be a, a, a pilot. I didn't know much about how to, uh, how to get involved. And shamefully, uh, it was before the internet had really kind of been invented, so I couldn't even Google it but my parents had a family friend who's in the Air Force and he gave me a bit of advice and then I applied. Uh, I didn't actually get in the first time round. I went up to Cranwell, did the selection for three days and then got a rejection letter uh, and had another go when I was at university, joined the University Air Squadron and managed to get in the second time.
0: And uh, specifically with the Typhoon, how much weaponry are you carrying?
1: It's a multi-role aircraft, the Typhoon, which means that it can do air-to-air missions uh, dogfighting, long-range intercepts, all that sort of thing, as well as air-to-ground. Uh, so taking out, striking uh, targets, and also primarily supporting troops, soldiers on the ground, which is what the, the mission in Iraq and Syria is mostly about. So in terms of weaponry, you've got a full suite. The, the aircraft would normally carry two external fuel tanks, uh, a lightning pod, which is a, a designation pod with a laser in it, and a camera. So in the cockpit, you can get a, a camera feed of what you're looking at on the ground, you can point that thing around and move it around. Uh, And then in terms of weapons, you've got a loaded cannon uh, with 27 millimeter shells, um, four uh, paveway precision um, weapons and eyes out there, which are GPS or laser guided bombs, and also radar guided missiles and heat seeking missiles. Uh, Since I've left the Air Force, um, it can now also carry brimstone uh, missiles and storm shadow long range uh, cruise missiles as well. So you've got Uh, quite a suite of weapons at your disposal.
0: Mm. You write in your book about those bombing missions against ISIS on Operation Shader. How do you know where to go and who is on the ground?
1: The missions were really about supporting the soldiers and the troops on the ground, particularly when they got into trouble, uh, they'd call in air support. Uh, So the mission set is called close air support. um, And where you would go would completely vary. Uh, Every day was very different. And you'd sit on the tarmac uh, on the runway, often at night surrounded by thunderstorms, knowing that you had about eight hours in the cockpit ahead somewhere over Iraq and Syria, but you didn't really know where you were going to be going uh, because you've got a limited amount of aircraft um, in the sky and they needed to flex and to go to where they were most needed at the time. Uh, So you'd check in, you'd cross the border, you'd fill up with fuel from an air-to-air refueler, uh, one of the tankers, and then you check in with a command and control uh, aircraft that was up in the sky and they would tell you where you were needed. And then you would just hustle over there as quickly as you could uh, and talk to the JTACs, who are the specialist soldiers uh, on the ground who, who are trained at controlling um, airstrikes. And then you would support the task as you needed to at the time.
0: And how clearly could you see those you were targeting when you were targeting people?
1: Pretty clearly the camera. Uh, is very good you can zoom it in it works at day and night and one of the first things we did when we got on station was to try and find it sounds silly but you've got to try and find the target and you've also got to establish where all the friendlies are and that was the most important thing to make sure that uh, before you you did anything kinetic that you weren't going to uh, have any impact on friendly troops Mm. so you'd find what you're looking at on the camera you could data link that image Uh, to the guys on the ground. And between you, you could have a a quick conversation to make sure that you were talking about precisely the right thing before you thought about doing anything sort of kinetic.
0: And when you're going to bomb a target, can you just talk us through the process? What what do you do?
1: Yeah, it's a very involved um, process. And uh, as you'd imagine, quite complex. The first thing that needs to happen is uh, the rules of engagement need to be established. You know, is this a necessary target? And and there's a legal uh, restriction on what you can and can't um, strike. And so that needed to to happen, and that could happen quite quickly, particularly if if there was a troops in contact situation and um, you're operating under self-defence, well, then that was a very clear uh, necessity to to conduct that. So you do that, you talk about the target, you did a thing called a nine-line brief, where the JTAC would go through all the pertinent information that you needed for that particular attack, uh, you talk about that if you had any questions you could just talk about that in the clear at the time and then you'd look at uh, the best weapon uh, for the uh for the strike and and how you're going to go about doing that minimizing collateral damage and absolutely making sure that there was going to be no um, harm to friendlies when you got the clearance to attack it was just a case of getting on with it as quickly and as professionally as possible and uh, your mindset is just completely immersed in the cockpit. You're flying the aeroplane, you're talking on the radio, you're working through the weapon system, you're, you're slewing the camera pod, you're keeping an eye on your fuel. So you're, you're just working at 100% really to make sure that it, it all happens professionally and as quickly in, uh, as possible.
0: And who gives the clearance? Who makes the final decision?
1: The final decision is, is normally made by the JTAC. And so he'll give you the clearance to strike and on receipt of that clearance, then you can go ahead.
0: And what goes through your head during that process?
1: I'd say a, a huge range of, um, of, of complex emotions go through your head. You're, you're very aware of the risk that's involved. You're in aircraft on your own um, and, you know, that there are surface-to-air missiles around. So your, your wingman normally uh, is looking out beneath the aircraft to make sure that you're, you're sort of defending yourselves against that risk. Uh, so that's that's one of the things you're thinking about. I think your overriding emotion, though, is that you just want to get this done as quickly uh, and as professionally as can as you can, um, because um, normally we were called in to drop weapons when there was a clear and, and huge risk to, to friendlies. And if we didn't get uh, the weapons down quickly, then there was an immediate risk of, of loss of life from friendly troops. And so you just wanted to get this done quickly and as professionally as possible, while, while minimising the risk to um, to any you know collateral. And when we were out there, we conducted over 300 strikes and we we had no reports of civilian casualties, which I was hugely proud of. Mm.
0: You also, on just one occasion, used the typhoon's gun against ISIS targets, the first and only time a typhoon gun has been used in action. Can you just talk us through that? How was it?
1: Yeah, that was fairly unusual. And it had been a particularly uh, challenging and long sortie. We'd already... Uh, been called into action against uh, an anti-aircraft gun uh, that that was firing so we destroyed that we'd also uh, hit an ammunition storage building uh, and then been in action against some uh, snipers and then we're called down to a a huge firefight near ramadi where there were uh, an enormous amount of uh, enemy troops um, firing rpgs and uh and weapons at the friendly troops and so this huge battle was going on beneath and we were overhead for about an hour supporting that and just getting through uh, the weapons. And then uh, it was the JTAC's decision. He just said that there was a target. They were um, pinning down some uh, some friendly soldiers and they requested the gun. And so uh, that was the requirement. And it was a capability that we trained for uh, and um, and you know could use. So um, got visual with the target and then from height rolled uh, the aircraft down accelerated so that the whole thing would happen quite quickly, he tried to come out of the sun and then fired a, a, a burst with the 27mm onto that uh, target and then recovered the aircraft quickly and climbed back up to height again and, and got the camera back pointing on the, on the ground.
0: How risky was it, though? Because you have to get quite low, don't you?
1: Yeah, you do get quite low and you're certainly at the risk of small arms and um, infrared surface-to-air missiles at that height. So I was pretty aware of all that. Uh, also having been above the, the, uh, that, that bit of sky for about 40 minutes or an hour before I was very aware that they might think we're up there and uh, going down the hill, um, it was going pretty fast, uh, almost about 500 knots, but getting pretty low as well, right, right on top. So it had been very clearly visible, I'm sure. They probably took a few pot shots, but luckily nothing hit the aircraft.
0: It must have gone through your mind uh, on many occasions, uh, what happens if you have to eject into enemy territory. Were you frightened?
1: I think that uh, the risk of ejection is something that everyone considers uh, in slow time and, and tries to make peace with. We're trained, uh, all the fast jet pilots are trained in escape and evasion and trained in some survival techniques. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it, it was a huge risk, particularly back in 2015, when ISIS had controlled nearly the entire region. And it's something that you're aware of. You had some procedures for if you had to eject. But yeah, it, it was something that we considered. And you just tried to put it to the back of your mind and get on with the job.
0: Yeah, because the barbarity of ISIS takes things into a whole new domain.
1: Yeah, and it, it was very much something that you would you, you would try not to dwell on. And you just focus on the job in hand and uh, supporting the troops who, who needed that air support uh, at the time.
0: Was there ever a moment where your life was in danger in the sense that it was a close shave?
1: I think there, there were a few close shaves uh, throughout the deployment. Certainly the strafe attack uh, was pretty risky. Uh, one of the pilots was shot at by a surface-to-air missile and had to uh, deploy countermeasures and watch this thing sail behind him. And luckily, it didn't hit. Uh, I was locked up by a radar-guided uh, surface-to-air missile at one point. Um, And I had a a very uh, close call uh, at night with a a Voyager air-to-air refuelling aircraft where we were both put in the same piece of sky at the same time. And I flew past the wingtip of this thing, missing it by inches, and had to get out of the airspace pretty quickly after that.
0: How much time do you spend just flying and how much time actually fighting?
1: It really depends on the day. So often you'd be on the ground not knowing what the what the day had in store occasionally there was a pre-planned target where uh you could look at that the day before go and fly the mission conduct the strike and then fly home but most of the time you were just on call essentially Mm -hmm. and some days you were called into action as soon as you crossed the border the jtac be screaming on the radio we need help over here right now and you'd rush over um perhaps conduct a strike straight away and there'd be another jtac calling and you'd be a couple of hundred miles away racing up there perhaps going via the tanker to fill up with fuel again. And it was just this relentless kind of support until you, you ran out of weapons. And so you get, get through all eight, um, eight paveways on both jets. And that would happen quite regularly. Other days, you, you'd turn up, it would be quite quiet. There weren't any contacts happening on the ground, particularly at night sometimes. And you'd just be used for reconnaissance tasks or overwatch you'd be called to a certain area to try and find something or look for something or report what you could see. So there was always something going on. You never just sort of sat in the aeroplane and and did nothing. You always used. Uh, But there were peaks and troughs to the sort of level of intensity of uh, the sorties.
0: What was it like um, having to deal with that uncertainty and that intense pressure out of the blue?
1: I think that was just what the mission is. And um, for close air support, you always felt it was hugely uh, valuable, because you were directly supporting the soldiers. Uh, and it it was something that was kinetic some days and quieter the other days. But when it was quiet, you could almost take some solace in that as well. Um, satisfying, I guess, as well, very professionally satisfying. But really, the emotions that, that are involved are just ones of uh, sort of professional thoughts really about doing this thing properly, not making a mess of it, making sure that the attacks are precise and, and getting the effect that's asked for at the time.
0: Had you done anything like this before Operation Shader?
1: So I was a tactics instructor on the Jaguar and then on the Typhoon. I'd been out to Afghanistan and worked with the uh, JTAX on the ground in a, in a kind of liaison role as a, as a fast jet liaison officer. So that was a really interesting perspective uh, that helped. Doing it in the air, and teaching the stuff in the air, because you could see it f- through their eyes and with their perspective, and it also gave me, a, you know, huge respect for the work that, that that soldiers have to do on the ground, coping with the intensity of a you know a contact and a, and a and a battle situation. And in the air, arguably, you know, there's an awful lot going on, but it's it's very different, uh, and you've got to be extremely measured in, and and clinical in your thoughts. Um, in an aircraft, you haven't got maybe the noise. Um, and the sort of veracity of the moment as the soldiers experience. So uh, sometimes as a pilot, you've got to just think cleanly and just try and get, get to the effect that that the soldiers are after at the time. And just understanding those two differences was hugely helpful.
0: Now you've left the RAF. Uh, what do you do now, apart from writing the book, of course?
1: Yeah, I left uh, about three years ago. I think my future was I'd, I'd been a squadron boss and I think the RAF were planning to stick me on in desks for the rest of my life. And I, I actually wanted to get back to flying. So... I left and uh, I fly now for a company called Draken, and we do aggressor flying. Um, We've got two bases, one at Bournemouth, one up in the north at Teesside. I'm based at Bournemouth, and uh, we'll pretend uh, to be enemy aircraft flying against the Air Force and the Navy.
0: (laughs) So you're doing it for fun now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly good fun, but hopefully uh, valuable as well.
0: And when you think back to Operation Shader, how does that feel?
1: Well, it's still ongoing, isn't it? And I think um, the fact that it's been a success. Uh, is 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 fantastic. And I know that the troops and there's training going on and there's aircraft over the sky and there's a, a lot of really valuable work that continues to this day. Uh, and I think it's an incredibly valuable valuable mission that the UK is involved in. And I was very proud to be involved in it. I'm really proud of the team because, you know, one squadron at a time and all the other squadrons are out and get involved or all teams are all taking part in a much bigger picture. And I think just an enormous amount of pride that everyone did such a good job when we're out there. Uh, and came home at the end of the deployment.
0: Mike, really good to speak to you. Thank you for your time.